Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. Hey there, kings and queens. It's your girl, C.K. McGee. Hi, villagers. I am Patrina Reed, and we're your host. Well, here we are, my friend. Another week, another episode. How are things with you? Everything is everything. Still dealing with this weather and the hotness of it all, the humidity, uh, the little rain here and there, but overall doing well. Well, that is definitely good to hear. And yes, you are right about the humidity. It has definitely been uh, something that we have been dealing with this last week, but we are built for tough and we are still standing. So to God be the glory. <laughs> Amen to that one. How are you doing? What's going on with you? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, been a pretty busy week, but I'm very glad to say that I've been able to accomplish a lot of what it was that I needed to do. And so it feels really good to have my plate um, somewhat cleared so I can breathe a little bit. So that's always good. And, you know, just um, taking it one day at a time, you know. Well, absolutely. Congratulations on getting that plate cleared off. I know the elation that comes along with that. So I'm happy to hear that you are able to breathe again. <laughs> so that's, that's a wonderful thing. But that's great to know. It's great to hear that you're doing well. As always, we want you to be at your best and everybody else. And we hope the villagers are doing well as well. Yes. Hi, villagers. Hopefully everything is going well with you all too. And we want to just thank you once again for joining us uh, for yet another episode of Village Mentality, the podcast. And so, my friend, without further ado, I'd say that we should get into our first segment, which is called Let's Talk About It. Now, as you very well know, my friend, there has been much conversation surrounding COVID-19, various opinions about its worsening, what needs to be done in order for it to, you know, um, be alleviated, when a vaccine is going to be available. But one of the things that I thought as New Yorkers, um, we, of course, uh, tend to keep an eye on is the latest in terms of those states that are required to self-quarantine should they decide to come to the great state of New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut. And that list continues to grow, unfortunately. And yes. yeah, it, it's like crazy. Um, <laughs> but we're going to read that list right now so that we can make all of our villagers aware. So the states that um, anyone traveling from these states coming into the state of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, um, you will be required to self-quarantine um, they have things set up at the airport where you have to fill out paperwork. And obviously, we know that there are other ways to get into the States. But if you are stopped, then it will be asked of you how long you've been in the state. Uh, depending on the answer, the information that they're able to gather, you may be required to do a mandatory quarantine, and you may also be fined as a result of it. So the following states are on the list. Alaska, Alabama, Arkansas. 
Arizona, California, Delaware, back on the list, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Missouri, Mississippi, Montana, North Carolina, North Dakota, Nebraska, New Mexico, Nevada, Ohio, Oklahoma, uh, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia, Washington State, Wisconsin, and also Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. I feel like I just read the names of all the states in the union. You know what? I was getting ready to say, I think it would have been easier for you to read the <laughs> ones that were not on the list. Okay? I'm just saying. There, that is a lot of states. That's just basically the whole country. <laughs> it is crazy. And the conversation continues to be about whether or not people need to wear masks um, or if they're even, you know, adhering to social distancing. And I don't know about you, Queen, but I know that I'm hearing more and more people who are out in public, whether it's um, supermarkets or other public spaces, have you heard about people who, when asking others who are not wearing masks to wear masks, all the confrontations that have been going on? Yes. And I was wondering, what is the problem with people asking you to put on a mask? And why do you feel that you have to attack those people for asking you to do something that is healthy for yourself and others? Yeah, it's, it's, it's astonishing to me. And I mean, women, men, it doesn't matter. The, the, the response from these individuals who are clearly not adhering to these precautions that we have been taking, you know, to keep ourselves well, um, it's just, it's, it's baffling to me. Absolutely. It's like someone is, they act like someone is asking them to give a kidney or to sacrifice their children or I don't know. It's like, how can you take that so personally, but you don't take it personally to put the mask on in the first place? Um, there has been several incidences where just going to get a slice of pizza or going to get a pie, a pizza pie has become a, a confrontational outing because people who know the rules, know what is being asked of them is like, they are af uh, not afraid. They are adamant about not following it. Well, you know, a lot of the conversation too, Oh my goodness, see, there's some liveliness going on in the background, as always, in the streets of Brooklyn. <laughs> Listen, you know, you know my neighbors, they got to be everywhere, everywhere they don't need to be at this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you we were saying, um, there have been a lot of, like I said, conversations surrounding this. And one of them, of course, is the fact that, you know, everyone... Um, that has been talking, I guess, about these concerns that we have um, with individuals who are not willing to adhere to social distancing um, practices or by, you know, wearing masks. We're talking about how if the federal government actually were taking leadership of this, and instead of being in denial, 
as to the severity of this virus, which by the way, um, unfortunately we have lost uh, about 150,000 people um, in this country alone uh, because of the virus that if the leadership of the federal government were such that it required everyone to be on the same page, taking the precautions as opposed to making it seem as though there's some kind of weakness in you wearing a mask, uh, they feel that that would be helpful. What do you think about that? I agree. And I was watching um, one of the interviews that Dr. Fauci was doing um, on ABC, where he was talking about the standard had already been given when the the when he came out originally and said that the masks need to be worn and um, social distancing needed to be in, in place and hand washing and all of those things should be done on a regular basis. That was the standard that he was giving as a nation. Mm-hmm. So he was saying that, you know, people may think that there was no national standard given, but there was a national standard provided and his organization and, and, and all of the doctors and the scientists that were utilized to come up with these guidelines were there, were put in place for that reason. So why is it such a big disconnect between, um, the man in the White House and his leadership and what people think they should or could or won't do. Well, it seems to me that 45 is more about making this a a popularity contest than actually, you know, looking at the science and adhering to the experts that, you know, were formed as a part of his team, as a part of the, you know, COVID-19 team. So why would you have these individuals be a part of a panel, if you will, that is supposedly advising you in terms of the data that you're receiving from these different models that you're using, only to turn around and ignore them. And not only that, but to even get to a point where you're more concerned about um, people's, um, you know, rating. Like in other words, the fact that Dr. Fauci is so popular versus him not being so popular. It's like, how much more childish can you get before you actually put the concern of this country ahead of your damn ego? Yeah. When you look at all of the things that he does to deny, to deny that this is going on, um, he has flat out uh, given misinformation, lied, to be honest. He just lied um, about a lot of things when it came down to this pandemic. And he's still lying. And he's not only lying to the American people, but he's lying to himself. Um, at one point, he was basically forced into putting on a mask. And now that he has it on, it's like, oh, well, okay, I'll wear the mask and, and you know, now I'm going to put it on and I'm going to wear the mask when I go to North Carolina because, you know, th- there's things going on there and, and, and it makes more sense. Like, we have never seen such a person um, go through the things that he go through with his own, like you said, ego or the voices in his head, 
because I really feel like he has some issues that he needs to work on and he's putting lives in danger because he have people following him. Yeah, they're following him and the people who surround him, you hear from time to time someone else within his circle has contracted the virus. Yes, and then he wants them to take medications that's not effective to deal with it, or he dismisses it altogether. Well, no, they, they're not really that sick. It's just a common cold. It's just like he has an excuse for everything. And it makes me think of the statement or the old saying that we used to hear, which is twice a child, once an adult. Hmm. And I feel like he is going back into those childhood stages. My question is, was he ever an adult? (laughs) You know what? I think the verdict is still out on that one. (laughs) Lord have mercy. Well, you know, we're going to continue to be on it and we'll continue to update you guys here in the village. Um, let you know uh, what's happening and everything like that. So we're going to just go ahead and move on. And Queen, I'm not sure. Yes, I'm sorry. I did make you watch this because I was like, I don't want to watch this by myself. We're going to really talk about uh, a young man um, whose name is Julius Jones. And um, we had an opportunity a few weeks back now um, to look at a documentary about him. He is on death row in the state of Oklahoma. And um, he was basically 19 years old when he was convicted and sentenced to death for a murder that he did not commit. And this occurred back in 1999 in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is predominantly a white suburb outside of Oklahoma City. So despite the fact that there is evidence that proves that not only did he not commit the murder, but that he wasn't even there, when it happened, the court maintains that he received a fair and just trial. However, racist agenda and bigotry have prevailed over logic, reason, and evidence. Um, Unfortunately, he has exhausted all of his appeals and has been assigned a new legal team who are now working tirelessly to get a new trial so that indisputable evidence that had previously been excluded from his original trial can be presented. Queen, once again, we're faced with another black man, if I didn't mention that, he is African-American, who has been on death row for the last like 18 years or so, uh, who has been doing everything he can to fight for his life, to present evidence that when you listen to the evidence, it's clear He has witnesses, his family, who say he was with them the night that this murder occurred, the next like town or so over from where he was. Uh, And basically, from what we saw, it looked like it was a setup by the person who they feel is really responsible for uh, this murder. And what what it brings to mind for me is how easy it is when law enforcement decides to target you, how they're able to just totally railroad you and just take your life away, even if it's not, you know, actual death, but that's basically what they're doing to him. And he's not the only one. It happens every single day in this country. What do you think about this? 
I was um, amazed at the amount of evidence that they have to support reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And what is also amazing about this is that they knew and they still know that the prosecutor at the time was a racist. Yep. That they that he had an agenda and that they were in a predominantly white area which was relocated to that area because of um, the black population moving in to the previous area that they lived in. So there was a lot of biasness that went along with this case. However, through the lens in which we were able to watch the case and see how everything unfold, the misrepresentation from the lawyers alone should have been able to get him a new trial. Absolutely. The lawyers were incompetent. To say the least. To, yes. So it amazes me how all of this, even the lawyers themselves had to admit that they did a piss poor and pardon my language, a piss poor job at representing this young black man. And yet they still say he has had a fair trial. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And you know what? Your choice of words is actually appropriate given the situation. Because like I said, anybody who looks at the documentary of Julius Jones, uh, you will come to the same conclusion. And you're right, the attorneys themselves understood how they, I mean, to say that they underperformed is like uh, uh, just laughable. You almost feel like he should have just almost represented himself. He would have done a better job. Yes. And we all know that they say a, a person that represents themselves has a fool for an attorney, but he couldn't have done any worse than what they had railroaded him to do. They didn't even defend him. Let's just be honest about it. There was no defense at all all it was it played like a run-on sentence mm. that's what it played like it this man was railroaded in such a huge way that stevie wonder jose feliciano ray charles could have seen through it and we still have this man on death row because the state of Oklahoma decided that they were going to make an example out of this man using, using the person who actually committed the murder as a star or key witness. Are you serious? Uh, that's, that's the thing, you know, these criminal informants, which you always have to be able to take a look at those criminal informants and understand the relationship that they have with law enforcement. There is um, motivation to be an informant. You know, there is a financial gain, but there's also, you know, an opportunity, especially if you're someone who you yourself are dealing with a sticky uh, situation, you know, criminally. Uh, where perhaps you can be afforded some leniency 
for your, you know, um, for your testimony. Whether it's true or not does not seem to matter when, you know, the racist systemic, you know, justice system makes up their mind to just basically pick one and, you know, lock them away. So that is exactly what is happening here. And again, he has a new legal team. They are fighting to get a new trial. The only other thing at this point that can help is if the governor of Oklahoma will grant clemency. So of course, we will continue to watch this. I know that I did have it posted on my uh, Instagram page at purplediva72, uh, where you can go to change.org and sign the petition uh, so that we can, you know, do as much as we can from our end to see if we can help, you know, get him a fighting chance. So we will keep an eye on it. It's just absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and pray for that family. Pray for that family because they've been going through this hell for all of these years. This happened in 1999. We're in 2020. Mm-hmm. To know that your child is innocent and, and to have to watch them on death row, not knowing what day they're going to pull the plug. As a parent, I, I, I would never want to be in that position. And I pray that I never get in that position because somebody railroading my child. I, I just, I pray for the family and I, and I pray that the villagers do the same. Yes. Uh, you know, and just one last thought, because you just reminded me of it. Had it not been for the fact that there was uh, a, a period of time where they, you know, halted all executions in the state of Oklahoma because there was a question of constitutionality based on the way they were putting the inmates to death, um, he would already be dead. So he basically right now is on borrowed time, villagers. And so again, you know, let's um, look out and just keep an eye on the situation. And hopefully, hopefully somebody will have a conscience and will, you know, see the writing on the wall. It's clearly there. So we shall see what happens. Absolutely. So then moving on, my friend, we also had the opportunity. I'm always asking you to watch stuff, right? I'm surprised you're not just like, leave me alone. (laughs) We we had the opportunity to watch the video a little while ago um, of, um, or I should say the interview, not the video, the interview of D.L. Hughley on Vlad TV. And, you know, one thing about D.L. Hughley, are you familiar with him, Queen? Absolutely. I love D.L. Hughley. <laughs> Funny. Now, now D.L. Hughley, of course, is considered one of the original kings of comedy, uh, along with uh, Steve Harvey and Cedric the Entertainer and the late Bernie Mac. And, um, you know, I personally, you know, ha- have not really ever been a fan of his so much so for his comedy, but completely admire the fact that he is one intelligent brother. Somebody who, you know, um, he did not graduate from high school. Um, he was involved, you know, um, in the streets, but he is, or at least turned his life around where he is educated. He is very well read. And it's just very interesting to listen to him and some of the viewpoints that he has. And so there were three points from this interview, my friend, that struck me. Um, One of the things that he talked about was 45 and his supporters. 
<laughs> and what he said was basically that he believes that 45 is morally bankrupt. And with everything that he has done to people of color, women, and children, he cannot understand how people can support him when everything that he does is in service to himself. He doesn't care about your political affiliation, that is D.L. Hughley. He doesn't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican. But if you support him, he said straight up, I just can't mess with you. How do you feel about that? Uh, I, when he said it, I was like, you know what? He's absolutely right when it comes down to the things that um, the man in the White House has done. And for those who still are on his bandwagon, you, you do question their, their, <laughs> their mentality. <laughs> you question um, what their moral compass is and, and their standards. And, and, and you question a lot about that. So for, for DL, he's like, I'm not even going to question it. I'm just not going to deal, deal with you at all. And you can respect that. You have to respect a person who is able to stand their ground and able to say, look, I don't agree with none, this, none of this thing or none of the things that he's doing. I don't agree with how he has uh, manipulated and, and, and bought out and lied about everything. And I'm not going to be bothered with that. And sometimes we have to remove ourselves. You know, they say bad association spoils useful habits. So you, you have to remove yourself from those type of people. So I, I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah, I totally was feeling it when he said that, because it's true. When you think about everything that this president has done, you know, how could you, especially a woman, his sexist remarks, as a person of color, he racist, oh my God, just listen to him speak with the things that he talked about. And with everything that he was doing as far as the wall and our southern border and our brothers and sisters from that, you know, part of our, you know, world that are and were looking to come into this country who had protections before he came into the White House um, to have you know, children and, and, and women separated from each other, children put into cages. I mean, we of course know what that's like as people of color because our history you know, um, um, lets us know that that's exactly what enslaved individuals went through as well. So to see that kind of behavior in, in the 21st century is completely astonishing. And the fact that he has as much support as he does, just from a humane, a, a humanitarian point of view is just like, wow, to me. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, how can you stand flat-footed with that when, like you said, you have pointed out a plethora of things that should make you feel repulsed thinking about it? should make you want to run in the opposite direction every time you see his face. But you still have people that will tell you he's doing a great job and, 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 and you know, this is the best the country has been and whatever, because they're all in that delusion. Yeah, and it's really a scary thing. He goes on to talk about voting. Um, and in his opinion, he thinks that voting should be mandatory um, in the United States as a citizen in the same way that jury duty is. Uh, and, and they actually mentioned in Australia, 
you can actually receive a fine if you do not vote. Now, I am all for, you know, again, the importance of voting. I do think that it is a right that we should exercise. I do think that it is a powerful way to exemplify, um, excuse me, amplify our voice, um, you know, especially when we're dealing with issues that really uh, impact our communities of color in a severe way. I really can't see how we can stand by and allow him to be in office another four years, given what he has already done and what he's looking to do. He just recently rolled back the Fair Housing Act, uh, which gives, or at least was trying to give people of color an opportunity to be able to, you know, um, own houses and things like that, because he wants to protect the suburbs. In other words, protect white people from black people. Um, so when it does come to voting on different things, obviously the presidential election is not the most important, uh, or I'm not saying it's not the most important, excuse me, it's not the only one that we should be paying attention to. Um, there is uh, voting that takes place on the local and state levels as well that we also have to be mindful of um, because they too impact us on a daily basis. So when he said that, I'm not sure if I, I don't, I don't want to necessarily force people to vote, um, but I just would encourage people to take it more seriously. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I'm with that as far as people should have the right to choose. Um, there are many reasons why people don't vote, and there are many reasons why people should vote. Um, if you don't have a religious reason why you don't vote, if you're not uh, formally incarcerated or, or have those limitations that come along with that, then yes, you should exercise your right to vote. Because like you said, we do have um, many, many instances, instances ah, where, excuse me, where we need to exercise that right, putting people in the right positions to uh, further our benefit to further our growth, to further our uh, expansion is necessary. And when people choose not to exercise their right, it further, it basically leaves us at the bottom. You know, we'll never get to the top if we don't have the right people in place pushing for us to do that. So I don't feel like it should be a mandatory thing. I feel like people should be educated more um, about why it's necessary for them to vote. And yes, it shouldn't just be about the presidential campaigns or, um, or just that one-sided view because a lot of times we miss out on putting the right people in Congress because we only focus on one election. Absolutely true. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, there will be enough mobilization within the country. The younger generation obviously has some very valid concerns, really valid concerns, you know, in terms of like climate change, for instance, and sort of like what this world is going to look like. What are we, what's the legacy that we're leaving, you know, for them? And there's a lot of activists such as like Yarsh Hedi and others who are very, you know, outspoken as far as voting. So um, I know that there's a, a lot of talk about voting this year, particularly in dealing with COVID-19. And, you know, because we want to keep people as safe as possible, we're looking at more um, absentee ballots 
um, as opposed to standing in line for long periods of time around others. So for those of you who are voting, for those of you who understand the significance of voting, um, please, please, please get out there and let's, let's do it because we really need to get this man out of the White House. We can't let him be in there for another four years. We just can't. We just can't. Agreed. Exactly. So one of the last points that he made that I thought was kind of interesting for us to talk about, Queen, is they were talking about the idea of old school versus new school parenting. And they decided to talk about Dwayne Wade and his child, Zaire, who um, I guess has decided to... um, I don't know how to say it because I'm still like wanting to understand this myself. I guess that Zaire is gay, um, but maybe wanting to be seen as female at this point. Um, And Dwayne Wade is, of course, in full support of Zaire. And I think one of the points that BL was making is that he's concerned, I think, about the new school parenting where it seems that parents are more interested in being their child's friend than providing some guidance and discipline, Um, especially given Zaire's age, which I believe that uh, Zaire could be like 12, maybe 13, where there are some very serious and some very critical decisions that um, is being made by the child as opposed to the parent. You being a mother, how do you how did you feel about that part of the interview? Well, we have talked about this um, way before this interview with uh, DL. And it's my personal opinion, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but villagers, we all have opinions. I feel like as a parent, I agreed with DL's mindset. And what he was basically saying is that I can support you if you say to me, you are gay. Right. But what he said, what he, what he meticulously said was he was not going to go to the extreme to make you as a child feel comfortable with your decision when you really, how do I say this? At that age, Mm -hmm. do you really know what it is that you want to, to, to be, to do? You're still experiencing life. So we have to look at, as, a, as, a, as parents, we have to look at what our children bring to the table and how we influence that. Mm-hmm. I have had numerous conversations about how we as parents want to be so liberated in our thinking that we blur the lines for our children. An example, if your three-year-old see you 
getting your nails polished and then you turn around, whether this is a boy or a girl, you turn around and then polish their nails. If it's a boy or a girl at three, they don't know the significance of that. You're just polishing your nails. They're just polishing their nails because they are They are imitating, yeah. imitating. I can't speak right now. Imitating what they see, right? Right. So it's not that, oh, they, because some people say, oh, well, I knew when they were little that they were going to be uh, gay or they put this stigma or this, this title out on this child at a young age. And I feel like because we want to be so liberated, liberated, excuse me, and, and our thinking and how we, we communicate and relate to our children, we allow them to come up with whatever they feel, whenever they feel, and then we want to condone it. And what DL was saying was that, okay, my child said she was gay, or excuse me, in this case, um, it was Dwayne Wade's son saying he's gay, and now he wants to be a girl. But DL was saying, okay, he wants to be a girl, but I'm not going to do the things that he wants to do to support him in that way. Right. I'm not going to let anybody like hurt him or, or cause him any kind of harm or anything like that. But, you know, quite frankly, he just feels like he's too young to make such a serious decision. Um, you know, that's your child. You love them. You know, you want to do what's best for them. Um, but but sometimes, you know, just totally putting him in the driver's seat, it, it can be a little bit concerning. It, exactly. And again, when children are being brought up in a society that glamorizes everything. There is no more innocence in this world. Children are exposed to a multitude of things. So for you as a parent to understand that the overexposure to um, different lifestyles can make it appealing, can make it appetizing, can make a person want to experience it. You have to then be mindful of the decisions that you are allowing your child to make. Because again, how do you know you don't like something if you never tried something? Mm -hmm. True, yeah. Oh yeah, that was um that was uh pretty interesting. Um and you know, I listen, I'm I'm really not here to judge. It's it's I mean, to be quite honest, it's not something that I understand um altogether, but I'm not here to judge or, you know, criticize. It's not my place to do it. Uh but you know, I just feel like it was pretty brave to be able to, you know, speak his piece. And, um, you know, we'll just uh, move on from there. <laughs> um, and so, with, um, you know, it's kind of um, sad to have to, you know, say this, but we have recently lost Representative John Lewis. 
who was a civil rights icon. He just recently died a few weeks ago at the age of 80 from pancreatic cancer. And inspired by Rosa Parks and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he became involved in the civil rights movement. And on March 7, 1965, there was a planned march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama, where the protesters were met by state troopers at the edge of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That event would be known as Bloody Sunday. And in several accounts, Representative, Representative Lewis mentioned that he thought he was going to die that day on the bridge. He remained the vanguard of progressive social movements and the human rights struggle in the United States. And in one of his most famous quotes, he says, and I quote, get out there and push and stand up and speak out and get in the way, the same way that my generation got in the way. Get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. We salute you, Representative Lewis, and we thank you for all that you did for the love of your people. May you rest in peace and in power. Amen. He, he as well as others um, of our civil rights leaders are leaving this place. Um, and it's, it's sad. It's sad to see the good ones going, but yeah. We, we have to remember that they didn't do their work in vain and that we have to support their efforts by carrying on. Absolutely, absolutely. We're better off having him. Yeah. And so my friend, we have come to that portion of the show where we can sort of lighten up a little bit. This is uh, our time for the inspirational story for the week. Yay, my favorite part. <laughs> what do we have this week? What do we have? Well, I, your, your enthusiasm gets me every week, by the way. Um, I only hope that the villagers out there feel the same way. <laughs> I hope so, too, because these stories are great reminders. They are um, such wonderful breaks to the heaviness that goes before it. So, yes, when I am sitting here waiting in anticipation for the new story of the week. I am truly doing this because I want to hear it. I really, I'm waiting. I'm excited. Well, without further ado then, today's inspirational story is about controlling your temper. So it's focusing on anger. So there once was a little boy who had a very bad temper. His father decided to hand him a bag of nails and said that every time the boy lost his temper, he had to hammer a nail into the fence. On the first day, the boy hammered 37 <laughs> nails into the fence. The boy gradually began to control his temper over the next few weeks and the number of nails he was hammering into the fence slowly decreased. He discovered it was easier to control his temper then to hammer those nails into the fence. Finally, the day came when the boy didn't lose his temper at all. He told his father the news and his father suggested that the boy should now pull out a nail every day that he kept his temper under control. 
The days passed and the young boy was finally able to tell his father that all the nails were gone. The father took his son by the hand and led him to the fence. And the father said, you have done well, my son, but look at the holes in the fence. The fence will never be the same. When you say things in anger, they leave a scar just like this one. You can put a knife in a man and draw it out. It won't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry, the wound will still be there. So what's the moral of the story? Control your anger and don't say things to people in the heat of the moment that you may later regret because there are some things in life that you are unable to take back. Queen, this one hurt, this one cut me to the quick because I have totally been guilty of this in my lifetime. I have allowed my temper to get out of control and I have said hurtful things to people and it's true. You, you, as much as you apologize, you can't undo the damage. Yes, my friend, uh, this has hurt me as well. <laughs> um, I have been guilty uh, of, of saying some, some things um, and had to go back and apologize. And like you said, it doesn't matter. Once you've inflicted that pain, whether it's intentional or provoked, it is what it is. And so we do have to be so mindful of how we speak at all times, because there is power in the tongue. Although we may not believe it all the time, it is it has shown to be true. So I love this, this particular story. I love it because it is a great reminder to me, as well as all of the villagers out there that we must be more intentional about our speech and our actions and emotions. Um, a lot of times we want to control everything else mm -hmm. except for ourselves. And that's the only thing or person we have control over. It's ourselves. So to have that reminder that, okay, you know, you might be mad about it, but you need to sit this one out. Just, <laughs> just sit this one out. <laughs> that is so true, friend. It is so true, girl. I am a work in progress. Um, pray for me. I'm, I'm a work in progress. And um, maybe not as bad as I was like a really long time ago, but I still can be bad at times. And, um, you know, not only is it hurtful, you know, to the person that those harsh words are being said to, but believe it or not, it actually like it hurts me too like when I think about did that just come out of my mouth you know what I mean yes exactly because some things that <laughs> could be said you just like mm, I didn't want to go there I didn't want to go there you try to justify why you went there in the first place knowing that either way it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong for the person to provoke you to that state, but it's also wrong for you allowing that person to trigger you to that state. And that's the reason why we always talk about our triggers, know your triggers, know your triggers. Um, because when we know those things, we are able to do 
better. We're able to put prevention in place. And that's what we need to do when it comes down to our, our anger is to walk away, sit it out. You know, sometimes you want to get your, your word in. Don't, you ain't going to be the last person to say something to me. Now I'm, mm, no. Relax. <laughs> yes, please breathe. Breathe easy. Breathe easy. Take several seats and try again. <laughs> well, definitely it is a lesson for us all. Uh, and you're right when you say that the only person that we can control is ourselves. And again, like I said, a work in progress I am. And um, just taking it one day at a time, you know, to not allow, like you said, anyone to sort of take you out of pocket. Because there are those people out there, you know, who will definitely like push and push and push. And, you know, sometimes, you know, okay, you're not looking for it to go there, but as long as we can continue to do that work, as you say, recognizing our triggers, walk away from a situation, it's much better for, for not only them, but for yourself, you know? So if we can just think about it that way, I think we'll be much better off. <laughs> exactly. And realize, like you said, we are all work in progress. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that we can recognize that and we have the support system in place to help us recognize that. So when we are out of pocket, when we do get out of line, when we do cross that, you're able to sit down and go, you know, let me, let me talk to my friend or let me talk to my family or let me talk to God or somebody because, because you feel, you feel a certain way after it all happens. Like even if you are right and you're wrong, you're like, nah, mm -mm, this ain't right. And you want to, you want to get somebody else's opinion to see if your reaction was something that was right for that moment. Are you overreacting? Are you acting out of anger? Are you acting out of emotion? So it's beautiful to recognize who you are in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now this is actually my favorite part of the show where I have the opportunity to look to you, my friend, my musical jukebox, so that I can hear from you what you have up your sleeve this week in terms of our musical selection. Come on, let me know. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate that you enjoyed this part of it. Um, yes, the love of music is my life. And before we get into our today's topic, we're going to talk about love. Mm. Oh my gosh, we're gonna talk about love. Oh. And who better to help us understand that love's in need mm. than Stevie Wonder. Now, I just wanna give you a disclaimer, friends, villagers, listen. We're not playing the, orig the original version of this song. However, Blackstreet did a remarkable job mm. at giving us the beautiful tone of love in need. And we're going to sit back, relax, and listen. And when we come back, we'll get into today's topic. Good morning, evening, friends. 
loves in need of love today. Don't delay, send yours in right away. Girl, I love that song, whether it's Stevie or Blackstreet. Thank you so much for that. A beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. So yes, love is in need. Well, it completely resonates with everything that's going on uh, today because we definitely are in need of love. There is so much hate that's going on and going around, mm. and I don't really need to like get out here and break out with the song, but uh, no true words could have been spoken, and so definitely appreciate that. And so without further ado, why don't we go ahead and get into today's topic? So today we're going to be talking about Black Lives Matter versus White Power. That's right, Black Lives Matter versus White Power. You know, Queen, we've heard a lot lately, um, you know, regard with regards to the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of negative and hateful things that have been said about the movement. And uh, I have found personally that it has been taken out of content, um, context um, within the community, without the outside of the community, excuse me. And um, it really just kind of inspired me to, to do this show so that we can perhaps explain for those who may not be familiar with the movement and who may only have you know seen what's going on on television and in social media instead of actually knowing what it's all about so i thought it was really important for us to have this discussion today because these are two entirely different um movements feelings sentiment sentiments and we're here to explain that today so black lives matter uh, is an organized movement in the United States advocating for non-violent, let me say that again, non-violent civil disobedience in protest against incidents of police brutality, again, police brutality against African-American people. That's what the Black Lives Matter movement is all about. It is advocating for non-violent civil disobedience in protest against incidents of police brutality against African-American people. An organization known simply as Black Lives Matter exists as a decentralized network with about 16 chapters in the United States and in Canada. While there is a larger Black Lives Matter movement, which exists uh, consisting of various separate like-minded organizations, such as the Dream Defenders, which is an American group aimed at ending police prisons, especially private prisons. They also espouse to end the school to prison pipeline and Asada's Daughters, which is an organization of African-American women and girls in Chicago protesting against police violence. It was founded in March uh, 2015 by Paige May and this group is named after the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army member Asada Shakur. So the broader movement and its related organizations typically advocate against police violence towards Black people, as well as for various other police, uh, excuse me, policy changes uh, considered to be related to Black liberation. And the founders of this activist movement are Alicia Garza, Patrice Coolers, and Opel Tometi. I apologize if I've mispronounced anyone's name. And this movement was founded in July 2013, okay, um, with the official use of the hashtag Black Lives Matter um, on social media after the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the shooting death 
of African-American teen Trayvon Martin, which happened in February of 2012. So the movement became nationally recognized uh, for street demonstrations following the 2014 deaths of two more African-Americans, Michael Brown, which resulted in protests and unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, a city near St. Louis, and Eric Gardner right here in New York City. Queen, have you heard some of the comments that have been um, hurled at members of the Black Lives Matter movement and just the movement in general? I have heard some of the negative comments and it's sad that people with all the technology that we have, with all the information at our fingertips, choose to stay ignorant and want to deceive others in their ignorance. Right. And it, it's, it's so sad because you're taking a movement that was created out of need to because of your because of racism and because of the things that continually go on with black lives and you want to make it something that it's not right when you know when when people are talking about black lives matter it's not a racist chant it's not a um it, it's not a, a declaration of, of Black superiority because that is not what it's about at all. Basically, Black Lives Matter is a plea. It's a plea for law enforcement to start treating communities of color, particularly African-Americans, with the same, the same respect, courtesy, that you extend to Main Street America, otherwise our white counterparts. If you are supposed to protect and serve, you shouldn't have a choice as to who you're protecting and serving. Um, a lot of times, unarmed Black men and women are, you know, treated unjustly and unfairly. Situations between law enforcement and Black citizens escalate quickly and a lot of times have resulted in death. And so when, when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we're not saying that our lives matter more than anyone else's or that we're special. In fact, we're not even saying we're special. We just want to be treated equally. And it's, it's amazing to me how ugly people become when that is said. Exactly. And so with you saying all of that, it's just... When you think about the reason the police department was actually created in the first place, um, it wasn't to protect and serve us. It wasn't to protect and serve the black and brown community. It was in place to basically keep us at bay. That's right. So to speak, keep us in line, make sure that we're towing the line, that we are we're acting like we're supposed to. So that mentality has escalated to now there's no more fear of killing a person, a black or brown person in public anymore. Um, before they were, it was hidden behind the sheets that they would use. 
it was hidden behind um, prisons. It was hidden behind the chain gangs. It was hidden behind all of those other things. But now it's gotten to a point where you're, you're setting an example, so to speak. You're making an example that if you, black and brown people, get out of line, this is what's going to happen. Right. And it didn't discriminate. It didn't matter whether you were a man, a woman, a child. It was like there was no respect or no feeling at all for Black life. The, the idea that we were treated worse than animals is basically why these cries are, are being, you know, uh, um, voiced at this point. Because again, like I said, it's a plea. We just want to be treated equally and fairly. And it just, it's, a, it, it's another thing too, when you hear other groups, other marginalized groups, when they feel that they are not being treated fairly, they too lift up their voices, raise their voices. And it's interesting to me because it seems as though in those instances, Black Lives Matter is always there to support. And I know that recently with the murder of George Floyd a few months ago, we have seen protests um, of 26 million people around the world. I mean, because it definitely is outside of our, our country where it seems like finally at last, because of social media, quite frankly, where people are starting to understand maybe a little bit of what we're seeing because of witnessing that officer with his knee in George Floyd's neck to the point of him not being here with us today. And that is the brutal way in which Black people are treated more so than it's even reported. Absolutely. And then you have that flip side where people talk about white power, white pride. And what they don't realize is that all came about because of racism, because of supremacy, because of oppression, because of superiority. It was a celebration of power. The fact that they only wanted to further, further the agenda of racism, and it was only for white people. Now, let us dissect that a little bit. When we talk about white people, we're not talking about Jewish white people. We're not talking about Asian white people. We're not talking about any other a set of people. It was made for the Aryan, that, that pure white bread person, that that's what white power was celebrating. They weren't trying to celebrate anything that wasn't pure. And it was brought out to basically remind us that, hey, not only are you inferior, not only are you oppressed, but you don't even matter. And we're going to eradicate your race, if possible, to help you understand that you will never get the power or the privilege that comes along with white power. It wasn't made out of necessity. And that's where people get conflicted when they come back with that whole all lives matter. They don't realize that Black Lives Matter came out of a necessity. 
Mm-hmm. White pride, white power doesn't come from a place of necessity. That comes from a place of boastfulness. That comes from a place of superiority. That comes from a place of privilege. And it's, it's meant to cause fear and yes, control. Yeah, exactly. It's not about seeing hundreds of thousands of people killed that doesn't look like you having to say, okay, enough is enough. My life matter. When you have people who come back with that all lives matter, they continue to perpetuate the mentality of white power, white supremacy. Even though they may say, I'm not a racist, but if you can't clearly see that until Black lives matter, all lives will not matter, then you are in that mindset of racist. Well, according to the Black Lives Matter website, there are 13 guiding principles that should apply to those who choose to become involved under the Black Lives Matter banner among them are diversity, globalism, empathy, restorative justice, and intergenerational, excuse me, intergenerationality. I say that because nowhere in there is anything that says, you know, violence or, you know, superiority or thinking that we're better than. We all just really want to be in a world where we can coexist peaceably, peaceably. And I think that, you know, anybody who is in this country, in this world, should be able to have that. Um, And so a lot of people, they think that racism is just specific to the KKK or to the neo-Nazi groups, but racism has many levels to it, including our speech. From words like nigger to microaggressions, such as, you speak really well. Hmm. You are not like the rest implying that you're better than the rest of your race, or wanting to touch your hair like you're some kind of animal in the zoo. These are negative, prejudicial slights and insults toward any group, particularly culturally marginalized groups. Now, since 1619, my people have been treated unjustly, our people have been treated unjustly and inhumanely. Our lives have been discredited, dismissed. Our contributions to this country diminished. Diminished, excuse me. The time has come that those whose hatred runs so deep as to take the very breath from yet another Black man or woman need to be held accountable. And the cries of all those whose lives are snuffed out for no other reason than the color of their skin needs to be answered and justice needs to be served. A message needs to be sent that this systemic racist behavior will no longer be tolerated by any person of color, let alone black men, black women, or black children, brown men, brown women, brown children, anyone who is different should not have to be made to suffer. And as you mentioned, and I'm going to, you know, reiterate, if all lives matter, which all lives would include black lives, then prove it. Absolutely. And we also have to look at when we talk about the white power, white pride type of situation is that their goal 
their sole means of protecting that is through violence, which is a big difference compared to what we've just heard about Black Lives Matter. That's a nonviolent movement that is that was created out of a need. We talk about white pride, white power, which is unnecessary. There's no need for it because they are predominantly in control. You only need something if there is a deficit. There is no deficit when it comes down to the, the racism, the separatism, the unequality and inequality of life. There is no need when it comes down to a white person compared to a black or brown person. We have been in a fight for equality for hundreds of years and it is not getting easier. And for them, for, for people to continually um, throw in our faces or want to diminish what Black Lives Matter mean is evident that we have not came as far as we need to go. Yeah, we, we, we have come a long way, but we definitely have a long way to go. And with these protests out here and with calls for equity in really every aspect of our lives, um, we all as a, as a nation of people have to come together and, and work this out once and for all, because it, it's really just a shame that seriously, when you think about it, my friend, because of the color of your skin, the same color <laughs> that our white counterparts almost kill themselves to get by over tanning themselves and putting their skin at risk so that they can look like us, but they don't want to be us. And isn't that amazing? You don't want to be us because look at the treatment that we have experienced at your hand. Exactly. And as I gathered my information from um, PBS.org, which is the public broadcast system, um, there was a brother, Daryl Davis. Um, I also, upon your recommendation of United, State, uh, United Shades of America, I um, learned about Daryl Davis, who also is an advocate for uh, equality and understanding race relations and making the connection between the fact that music heals all wounds and brings understanding. And what I appreciated about him was that Daryl Davis has been able to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan and have became friends with um, many of their members. And he has converted a lot of them, especially in the state of Maryland. Um, to stop hating us because they don't know us. And so his thing is, it shouldn't be a, a thing such as white pride or black pride because we are all people. We are all people. That's it. We, if you cut us, we all bleed. And his thing was music can foster a relationship that is unspoken. Everybody loves a good tune. Everybody loves a good beat. And so 
using his his um his creativity and his musical genius he's been able to help bridge that gap but it takes all of us to make the effort in bridging that gap it takes all of us to educate our white counterparts co-workers friends uh neighbors associates, whatever, to help them understand there is no fear. We're not coming to attack. We're not coming to take over because in their mind, they have been manipulated to believe that we want and we're coming to take what they have, what's theirs, when it was never theirs to begin with. Amen. We are not the takers. We are not the takers. They have been taking things from black and brown since the beginning. And for them to put it in their mind that it's us is deflection and projection. It's and not us. We not. are not the problem. Nope. Nope. And again, you know, the things that you took, you took from people who, who already like, you know, established things here, already planted, already created, already invented, or you just take, 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 and you've made it all about you. And this is a nation of people who have so much to offer. And so instead of, you know, feeling the need to not only make yourselves appear to be better than everyone else, why not join in and learn and celebrate the differences of those around you? Because quite frankly, you may come to realize that we have much more in common than we, than we, than we, um, you know, than you realize we have much more in common than you realize. And so, you know, all of this fighting and everything, it just, it just really needs to stop. Amen. Exactly. At this point, I mean, come on now. We've been on earth a long time and to keep going back and forth on whose life, whose lives should be more important. Like, why is that even a question at this point? Why is that even still a part of our foundation? That needs to be broken down. That foundation of they're more superior than us is untrue. We have equally contributed, if not more, to the success of America. More. I mean, come on. Because our history has been um, diluted and, and, and destroyed and, and, and desecrated um, to, to a point where they don't even want to give us credit for the things that we've done to us to us to to even assist what and how america has become you know has 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 gotten here they don't want to give us anything and it's not fair and we shouldn't still have that same fight martin malcolm john lewis uh, um reverend al sharpton Harriet Tubman, the list goes on. Of Sojourner Truth. <laughs> yes, like the list go on of black and brown people, Frederick Douglass, who have 
struggled and, and, and fought to be recognized as a human being for over 400 years worth of, 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 of misery and, and, and slavery. And we wasn't slaves when we were brought over here. We had our own lives. We had our own things. There were architects and teachers and, you know, we didn't come here um, on our own volition. We came, we became, we came and we, be, excuse me, we were brought and then we were enslaved. Yeah, there was no, there was no walk through Ellis Island for us. There was no, um, you know, Statue of Liberty or any of those kinds of things. And, you know, this country was built on our backs. Black exactly. and brown, you know, have have been really the foundation of, of why this country is even where it is now. You know what I mean? So. Exactly. And we shouldn't have to keep fighting that fight. No, it, it, it's just time out for it. So, Queen, what would you say would be maybe a, one or two coping skills that, you know, we might be able to take from this? Well, as I... Uh do my best in bringing us coping skills and techniques. I really thought about this when it comes down to racism, discrimination, and likes, the likes of it. The two coping skills that I want us to really foster in our lives and, and promote and actually apply is building a great support system. That support system can be friends, families, professionals, um, your, your, your higher uh, being, someone or someones that is going to be able to help you deal with what racism brings because it does impact in our lives. It does affect us in some shape, form, or fashion. Another um, coping skill is compassion. Not just for others, but for yourself. You know, sometimes we're very hard on ourselves for thinking harshly or for thinking about ourselves, our community. Even being a part of Black Lives Matter or, or even taking a stand on how you feel about racism sometimes causes us to feel a kind of way about it. And I want us to understand that we have to have compassion for ourselves. We can't just feel sorry for, or excuse me, not just sorry, but have empathy for others. You know, we have empathy for all of the Black and Brown families who are devastated by the loss, the immediate loss of their loved one due to it. But we got to also look at ourselves and we have to look at how we feel about that and then have compassion towards ourselves for it. So build a good support system and have self-compassion. Yeah, those are two very um, important coping skills. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it is important to have a support system um, because it can be very difficult at times to navigate these very choppy waters and to have compassion for yourself and, and for others. Um, it also makes me think about uh, the state of our mental health. And this is something that, you know, it has an impact. It chips away because systemic racism impacts every aspect of our life. 
And so, you know, to have the support, as um, Petrina has mentioned, uh, from friends, family, spiritual, you know, support is, is important. But um, perhaps being able to even seek out the support of a mental health professional who um, is, you know, culturally sensitive, understanding the challenges that we as people of color may face um, can be also a helpful resource, help, a helpful coping skill uh, for us to aid us in this difficult time. So thank you very much, Queen, for uh, making those coping, coping skills um, known to us. And we hope that you villagers will have an opportunity to, you know, um, take that advice, or perhaps there may be, you know, ways that you have come up with on your own um, where you can share that with us. And we'll get to that just a little bit later on how you can do that. Um, so thank you again, Queen, for sharing those. You're so welcome. And as always, I want our villagers, we want our villagers to come away with something that's going to help them. And this is, these are just a few things. We are going to continue to provide as much information as we can. So I appreciate, again, the opportunity and you are definitely welcome. Well, with that being said, we have arrived at our final segment, which I like to call for the village. And so, my friend, what story or, or demonstration of village mentality do you have for us this week? Well, like we always know, research is a beautiful thing. So I found a story about a 33-year-old college counselor who lived in San Francisco, California. And this particular counselor, her name is Andrea Pien, she decided that during the pandemic, she was going to help as many people as she could. And she's not um, alone in that mindset. But what she decided to do was to create um, an avenue where no matter what the amount was, she said, no questions asked as far as why they needed the money, why they needed the help. She was going to help those who were unable to help themselves at the time. So she then created a website where people who needed financial assistance was able to go and ask for assistance. And she has been able to assist them. She was so clever in her thought processing because she decided to use her dog as a picture to create and build a rapport with people. So they felt less intimidated by asking for what they needed. And she was able to assist several of her neighbors and her friends. And she's been doing this for a while now and she's given away a good amount of money, but she wanted to contribute as much as she could. And she said that people have not been asking her for astronomical amount or anything like that. 
but she's been able to help. And so far she had given away at least at the minimum $400. And I thought that that was a great, um, compassionate and financial way to assist the village. Because again, when people are hurting or need help, sometimes it's hard to ask for that help. Uh, whether it's financially, emotionally, mentally, physically, sometimes it's difficult for people to reach out. So with her creating this site and putting her dog and just showing care and love for the community, she's been able to assist them. So I want to say kudos to her. I thought that was a great way, again, of showing village mentality. Well, this is a fabulous story, and I always think that it's very touching when you have someone who, you know, sees a need, they step outside of themselves, and they're willing to lend a helping hand. And given what we've been dealing with in terms of this pandemic and how people have been struggling financially, you know, even though supposedly, you know, you have your unemployment and, you know, the stimulus um packages that are supposed to be available. There are individuals who are still struggling because either they haven't received anything as of yet, or maybe they may not have been um, eligible to receive. So anytime that someone is willing to step outside of themselves and show true love and compassion and empathy for their fellow man, woman, child um, is all right with me. So thank you so much for sharing that um, demonstration of village mentality. We appreciate that. Yes, you're welcome. And like you said, you're right. There are so many people that are struggling in this world and we have to understand that it's not, it's not an easy thing. It's not struggle is not easy and the struggle is real. So it's beautiful to have these stories, like you said, that shine the light on that. So well, you're villages, welcome. Yes. Um, it's it's just great to hear it. So it's it's wonderful that there's so many available out there. So we look forward each week, um, you know, to hearing yet another one. So uh, villagers, if you know of a story or if you have witnessed an example or you are that example of village mentality, please be sure to send us your stories to our email address, which is villagementality20vision at gmail.com, all lowercase. Um, and we will make sure to share your story on our show. And of course, you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Village Mentality um, 2020. Before we go, um, I have a letter that I wanted to read from my <laughs> young niece who recently turned nine years old uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, she wrote this letter out of concern for her father, given the fact that my brother is very uh, instrumental in um, Black, Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movements. He's been involved with the protests. He's also been a speaker on several occasions. And, uh, you know, she's had an opportunity not only to be with him uh, during those times where he's at the protest, but also, you know, just her feeling about the situation. And again, like I said, um, she's nine years old. And she basically says, I'm going to tell you how I feel about racism. First, when my dad goes out, I always worry. I can't have my dad get hurt ever. He is my family. When my brother is older, he will have to face 
what is going on right now. I feel that racism is harming and I hate when people get hurt or killed because of the color of your skin. I just can't stand these cops. They are on my nerves. My family is multicultural. My mom is white. My dad is black. I feel less comfortable going out with my dad. He could be driving with my brother and me. Then he could get shot. What would we do? But my mom has a thing called white privilege. So I feel much more comfortable being with my mom. That's how I feel about racism. Amazing. For a nine-year-old, yeah, for a nine-year-old to write a letter like that, I, <laughs> it's been a while since I read it, but I still feel emotional behind it because I think we've mentioned before, recognizing that children have so much to deal with and to know that that's what's on her mind every time she's with my brother is very just very upsetting and and it just again it speaks to the huge impact that racism has on every aspect and every member of our society as black and brown people and we just want people to take that into account and to just kind of consider the children because they too are impacted by racism and they do have their own feelings about it so just thought that I would share that with the villagers today. Well, thank you for sharing. And that is, it's amazing. It's really amazing that our children have to, to live this life and worry so much at such a young age. So we thank your niece for giving us her words of wisdom. And I hope that our villagers really take to heart what she's saying. Yes, I hope so too. And so we're coming to the conclusion of our show. Was there anything else, Queen, that you wanted to say before we say goodbye? No, love. I think we've said it all. I think you're right. And with that, villagers, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Village Mentality, the podcast. We appreciate your support so very much. And we hope that you'll join us again next week for another episode. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's to brighter days.